The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, from wildfires uh, to floods, it becomes clear every day that climate change is intensifying. So why is it still a struggle to implement appropriate global solutions to this impending disaster? During the pandemic, nations right across the world swiftly banded together to execute essential mandates during a quite precarious time. So given the ramifications that climate change will have on our planet, why has climate change not received the same response? Well, I'm joined now by climate change activist Sive O'Neill, uh, who is Stop Climate Chaos Coalition coordinator. Sive, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Now, we can see the evidence of um, certainly the, the global conditions changing with the wildfires and uh, unprecedented events like flooding and, and so on and so forth, uh, melting of glacier ice, all of that. Why do you think the world is not saying, hang on a second, we got to do something now? Well, it is a question. Um, certainly looking at what the UN Secretary General has to say about it, Antonio Guterres, he doesn't mince words. He says that the radicals are not the climate activists, but the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. And he has said that investing in new fossil fuels is moral and economic madness. So the science is telling us that we have to reduce our use of fossil fuels to basically zero. And the time available for us to do that is dwindling um, as climate change is getting worse and greenhouse gas emissions are building up in the atmosphere. So the pressure is on to do this uh, in a way that's faster than is possibly comfortable. And this is why I I wrote the piece um, in the Irish Times last week, just kind of inquiring what an emergency response would look like. And it obviously means that we have to tackle the energy system in the first place. We have issues to address on the land use side as well. But looking at the energy system, the vast bulk of greenhouse gas emissions are coming from burning fossil fuels, gas, oil, coal, and uh, and so on. So those are the, the fuels that we need to eliminate. Yeah. So now, we can tackle it from the supply and the demand side. Okay, now, uh, you know, we can look at Ireland and... Uh, we are trying to do our best to repair, maybe not fast enough, but we're heading in the right direction. Um, and, you know, will it amount to a hill of beans in the global context if other countries keep doing what they're doing? Well, legally speaking, we are bound to address our territorial emissions. So we have to address the emissions that we generate yeah. from the island of Ireland. And there's no getting around that. Even if other countries are doing something else, we have to do our bit as part of the Paris Agreement and also under EU law, which is very prescriptive about this as well. Oh, OK, now we do that. And, you know, Europe maybe become the best boy in class when uh, you look at Asia, when you look at North America, when you look at the rainforests in South America, we may be best boy in class. If the others don't try to do their bit, isn't it a hopeless cause? Well, I suppose um, the the large emitters are definitely going to have to address uh, their emissions for us to have any chance of staying below 1.5 degrees. But the structure of the Paris Agreement is really around voluntary commitments that are supposed to add up collectively to the global effort that's needed. And the EU is a very important player in this, not just diplomatically, but also economically. We wield a lot of power in the economic system. 
So if the economic system and the financial system and investments and everything else are driving change towards renewable energy and energy efficiency, that is going to have a knock-on effect in the global economy. In fact, the European Union is introducing a, a carbon border tax adjustment to um, account for the fact that imported um, products could be cheaper because they're being um, made with fossil fuels, putting European countries at a potential disadvantage. So there are trade dimensions to this, but there's no getting around it. We're going to have to reduce our reliance on, on gas and oil you know, very quickly and, and in a way that might not be comfortable or easy. And we have to think about it as an emergency. Um, but in fact, what's happening is we are still seeing investments in new fossil fuel infrastructure, whether that's gas connections or new gas plants or LNG and uh, in various sort of fossil fuel infrastructures that are only going to make it more yeah. difficult to um, get onto renewables in the longer term. Yeah, but I mean, the transition to renewables, we're talking about uh, offshore wind uh, and in the Atlantic, you know, technically challenging enough. Uh, offshore wind in the IRC, less so. Um, we're looking at solar, um, limited amount of solar, but we can still do it. Uh, you know, we don't need bright sunlight to generate electricity. In the meantime, as we transition towards a, a total reliance on alternatives, we still need the gas. We still need to be able to keep everybody warm. Yeah, but this is where it comes it comes back to the need to phase down fossil fuels. So at the moment, about 50% of our electricity fuel is coming from gas and about 40% renewables. So that looks good on the face of it, but we have to get to 80% at least by 2030. And we should be striving to achieve 100% uh, sometime in the, 19, in the uh, 2030s. And that would involve us actually generating massive amounts of renewable electricity for mm -hmm. exports as well. So the, the, the problem is that energy demand is rising. We have more and more data centres that are huge gas guzzlers and electricity guzzlers on the system and wanting to get on the system. And that's going to make it very difficult for us to achieve our target. Mm. We also see that Gas Networks Ireland are still hoping to connect more and more houses to the grid, including houses that are currently, say, using oil for heating. Um, but that isn't a sustainable move. We really need to be getting those yeah. houses retrofitted yeah. straight with heat pumps. Yeah, the, 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 the heat pumps, again, some people complaining about the price of electricity to run the heat pumps, uh, that the equation that existed at low electricity prices doesn't necessarily add up. But that's a story for another day. But generally speaking, Sive, the simplest thing we could do is help everyone to insulate their house quickly and down to certainly a BER of, you know, B1 or, or better, do that quickly. And that would reduce our dependence on fossil fuels actually quite quickly if we had the manpower and the will to do it. Exactly. And, and this is the, the point I was trying to make is that we have to be thinking in terms of emergency actions. It will be uh, emergency across the board, not just with retrofitting, and um, but also in the area of transport and power generation. We need to urgently ramp up our production of renewable electricity. And there are serious challenges in getting the kind of extra renewable electricity we need. As you say, offshore wind is technically difficult, it's expensive, and it also takes a long time to get the relevant environmental and planning permits to do it. But we need to see about 10 gigawatts 
of offshore wind <clears throat> developed over the next decade or so um, if we're going to be able to produce you know, enough renewable electricity to meet our needs. And that's going to require a, a, different, a shift in thinking. We need to get away from our sort of assumption that incremental progress is going to do the job for us. And we're going to have to look at much more radical measures to intervene in the energy system to drive down our use of fossil fuels across the board and replace it yeah. with renewable electricity. Yeah, now the the quest to get that offshore Atlantic wind up and running, it's going to be technically demanding. And we're talking about maybe the mid-30s before uh, we get the kind of quantities you would wish for. Um, some of our listeners are saying, why didn't we invest in nuclear in the 1970s? Um, and that's, you know, we didn't do it then, um, so that's too bad. But we could invest in nuclear now. I mean, molten salt reactors which are safe, they shut down if anything goes wrong, they don't melt down. Uh, what's your, your view on molten salt reactors as the way forward? Well, I think that um, not having an electri- an, a, a grid system that is really suitable for nuclear is a major bar- barrier for us in Ireland. We're a very small, isolated grid. Nuclear electricity, um, it, it's not that it doesn't work, but it's very expensive and very slow to procure. So if you were to build a nuclear power station in Ireland starting today, bearing in mind that we have legislative um, uh, problems there as well that would have to be addressed, it would take you know somewhere between 10 and 15 years at the best to get a plant up and running. And that's the time that we have left to decarbonize our electricity system. So even if you're even if there was some decision to bring nuclear into the energy mix, it won't deliver the changes that we need in the short term. So it's only a possible solution in the longer term. Bearing in mind as well that we have all the renewable resources we need to supply the energy that Ireland requires. We're just not deploying them fast enough and that scale in order to make the changes that are needed. I'll read out, uh, so I think the nuclear thing is a slight distraction because it isn't the fix we need. I'm interested here in talking about an emergency response and nuclear just isn't that. I'll read out one of the WhatsApps. While it's appealing to compare COVID and climate, we also have to understand the key differences. The deal with COVID was that we as a society took some pain so that we could eventually go back to normal. With climate, there is no more normal or business as usual. And this is something our leaders have not tackled. How can we help people understand what's required while at the same time we're pursuing economic growth as usual, tourism as usual, farming as usual, etc., etc.? And on the issue of what's the point because we're so small, yes, we are a small island, but that fact should explain why we have huge vested interests in showing leadership so other nations will follow and therefore we can help protect ourselves. The only thing to be gained from shrugging our shoulders and doing nothing is to ensure the inevitable transition is as painful as possible. That kind of summarises your argument, Sive. Well, it does, except that that that, uh, text doesn't highlight any of the benefits. I mean, if we switch to a renewable energy system, we get clean energy. It's more affordable. It's possible for people to produce it at a very small scale, local scale, community scale or on their own rooftops. So there is a huge benefit to transitioning away from dirty and polluting fossil fuels. 
Um, th- there's a huge health yeah. cost, for example, in air pollution. And um, and there's also the cost to the economy because these fuels are all imported. Apart from the small amount of gas we produce in the carb field, we are relying on imported fuel to supply our energy needs. So, and we don't need to do that. In summary, on the demand side, uh, solar on every roof, uh, insulation on every wall and floor and ceiling, uh, and suddenly the demand for fossil fuel use drops like a stone. I would add to that no more fossil fuel infrastructure. We have to bite the bullet and stop investing in more pipelines, more gas plants and so on. We really have to start living within our planetary boundaries and our, our carbon limits if we're going to address this problem. Sive Neil, thank you very much for joining us. Next- the Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.